when I was a kid, once in a while I'd have these strange... It'd be like waking up. I remember when I was, I was in the checkout line with my mother, I had a red owl, so that kind of dates when this was. Dickinson. You're listening to Quoted, the Question of the Day podcast. I am Rebecca Smith. And all of a sudden, it was like, bing, I'm awake. And it was like, what am I doing here? It's almost like, what am I doing here and what am I in? I can have hands and I can move and it was just kind of a freaky, weird experience. And it was, I was probably late grade school. And it felt scary, but not scary. I was just totally kind of in the moment and seeing everything new. And it would come and then it just went. And every once in a while, like maybe once a year, I would have a little moment of that. So. This is where we start with a question and see where the conversation goes. And it's kind of, you know, kind of reframed how I, how I view things. Um, like what's real, what's, what's a dream. Um, you know, just, just like things that, it's kind of shifted my perception of things. It's, well, it's kind of, you know, these things are hard to describe. Um, Edgar Mitchell, when, with his experience, he couldn't really put it into words. Um, that's kind of the tricky thing. Um, but just, just, just kind of like a new take on what existence is about. Um, like I said, it's beyond words to describe what this is like. Um, so. I look in people's eyes. In their eyes. Um, I saw the pain and suffering. And, um, and usually the it's eye. their their eyes that tell it. It's it's how how in the tone of their voice and the, and the look the in their, their eyes. The release of that suffering. That I get some sort of in, intention about their sincerity. It seemed very real in the moment. Their body language. And there's a degree of humility. It's not, I guess, a band-aid. Um, it's more of a promise to get better in the future. And a wish to do something different next time. Well, you can tell when a person is speaking from the heart and when the person usually gives you 
uh, a reason why they realize that they're, they're they've done wrong stiff, they're, in, uh, in the know, first place. A little relaxed. They're 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 engaging with you. They're looking at you. There's an immediate response, an immediate apology, but I actually think that you won't really know until later on if you actually see it in their actions. So when it's very, very simple, and look, I really, really need to say I'm sorry. Done. You can feel it. It's an offense, huh? just can feel that they really mean it. Just by within them, how they, they really mean they're sorry. So, first of all, I have to choose to be offended. By their eyes, their actions, their vibration of their personality, their emotion. All that's storytelling, if you think about it. Please give me another chance. I'm, I really want to make it better. I'm really sorry for that. Uh, you made some promises and broke them. Let's, uh, let's figure out how to either fix this or go our own way. Can we talk? Did I do something? You know, what is it? You give a person a chance to prove themselves, and if they fail at that, then We do sorry. this thing called uh, the cutoff. It's, it's not we valid. It's maybe not, shun one another. Proof. And if they say they're going to do it and they don't do it, then, then you got to just walk away. How sad is that? Well, let's say that there's somebody in my life that I've never gotten an apology from that I think I should have gotten an apology from, and I will probably never get an apology. I think about that almost every time I'm with that person. Something happened. Your whole feelings and... Then two parties told a story about what happened. Perception of that person just drops. Then they made a funny leap. Maybe you have a history of this person or you have... How sad is that? You had faith you have to them before. That we lose connection with each other something over something that happened. That you, you know, and she's very cold towards me and I don't know what to say anymore. I don't know what to do. Life is hard. Life situations are I have hard. empathy. I can mm -hmm. empathize with you. A lot of people aren't I'm like entitled that. To if they're not like that, my perception of the situation. I really, really need to say I'm We're sorry. all human. We human frailty. Maybe Done. say things or do things that we don't mean. It's, it's acknowledging the other person as a human being. The mistakes that people make. We're human. We we fail. So I make this dumb assumption. Nobody wakes up in the morning thinking, let's see if I can offend Bob. Just social etiquette. For me, it's really about being heard. Above and beyond to apologize. Sorry, I'm sorry. I'm really, really sorry. She's usually not very sincere. If somebody doesn't do that, then I don't feel they're sincere. You look at your fingers, five fingers are not the same sizes, so they're different sizes. That's how the human beings are too, you know? God did not make us creative for five fingers same, you know? I think it's usually a, I'm sorry that there's this rift between us and I hope that we can grow past it. It's not, it's not I guess, a band-aid. The day they were packing their furniture, usually in the military, you're being packed or someone else is being packed, you invite them for lunch or you take dinner over or you do something to be nice, you know. I made some cupcakes, like 12 cupcakes, and I frosted them and everything, and I took them down to their house, and she was in the kitchen, 
And I walked in the door, and her name was Marilyn, and I walked in, and I said, Hi, Marilyn. I said, looks like you guys are about ready to leave. And she said, yeah. I mean, she never said hello or nothing. And I said, well, I made some cupcakes. I thought maybe the kids would like them or something. She took the box and just threw it on the counter. It never said anything. And so I turned around and left. I didn't want to do it, but I I thought I should because we'd been friends for a year or more. We always had a good time. We played cards together. They were nice people. Uh, that's how Rudy met Mrs. Smith. And then this all happened, and we didn't associate with him after that, or, you know, we didn't have anything to do with him. You know, I used to anguish over the fact that they didn't speak anymore, and we didn't speak anymore, and, you know, like they'd avoid us when we'd see him on the street and all this crap. And um, I think taking the cupcakes down takes a burden off of you. It was like, okay, I did my part, and I'm done with it. And then she called me. 10 years later, or maybe longer than that, 20 years later, we were living in Rapid City. Remember Rudy came, came and stayed with us? And one day I got a phone call from Marilyn, and she said, uh, we're in town. She said, we want to go see Rudy. And I said, why don't you come in the morning and I'll fix breakfast for you. So they did. I fixed him a big breakfast of French toast and sausage and bacon and all kinds of stuff. They told us what they'd been doing since they retired, and uh, they asked questions about Rudy, and they said that they were happy to see that he'd been he's taken really good care of. And she told us how grateful she was that we took such good care of him and all that, but never mentioned the history we had. Uh, she did a cutoff, cutoff, a shunning. She left. She left abruptly, and and but beyond that, she made it really clear to our friends and families, uh, members, that if uh, they were going to be in relationship with me, that she would not be in relationship with them. It was a classic case of what's called shunning. Very dramatic. I really would like an apology, but she's not giving me one, obviously, and she probably thinks I owe her an apology. That's life, whether it's an apology you're waiting for, or a job you're waiting for, or a girl that's never going to go out with you. Like, if it's not going to happen, it's not going to happen, and you need to move on with your life. doesn't matter if you've been hurt, or you're not going to get what you want, or you're never going to be, you know, six foot five player in the NBA. You know, it seemed like it must have been something that was building up in her mind, but I don't feel in any way responsible for her um, feelings. If she would just tell me, if she would just tell me if I did something, tell me. Would you just tell me? In our marriage, maybe I didn't acknowledge and respect the hard work she was doing in raising our son and that I was distracted with my career. Um, but I didn't notice that you know, we were living 1,500 miles from her home, that she probably was missing her mother and her sisters and her support. Why is it so hard to tell people when, when they've done something that has caused you to sort of say, okay, I don't want to hang out with you anymore? 
Why is that so hard? I mean, that's a huge risk. That's a huge vulnerability to say to somebody, hey, you, you hurt me. So one way to cope with that is to be really, really mad at them. So for a while, you want to be mad at them. You know, I don't want them to apologize. <laughs> I want to suffer. Uh, you know, I like to anguish. You know, I like to be mad and talk about it and carry on like that. And if they apologize, you can't be like that. you gotta, you got to quit. <laughs> I know that's bad, isn't it? I have no idea if that's what really was her upset. I don't know what she's never shared about. Her upset. I'm fine. Everything's fine. I couldn't keep pretending to be someone I wasn't. I couldn't keep being the perfect wife, mother, person that affluent suburbia expected. So you have to get this job that you really don't want and working for this outfit that you really don't want to work for so you can sustain this lifestyle that you've got and, and cover all these obligations. And I said, you know what, Bob, there's an easy solution here. Make this life real small, and then you get to choose who you work with and for. And uh, I, that would be my advice. Stop. Get off the, get off the tread. No. It's really not worth it. And life is short. This is a limited time offer. Why would you keep living as someone else when um, you're miserable? If you hold a bunch of things that are making you, you know, angry or bitter, then your life is not going to be as fruitful as it could have been. Demonstrating her Don't do that again, Kate. Offense. It came with you, I want to leave with you. It's not right. It's not right. She was like, hey, I won't do that again, but then she did it again. I didn't like that, and ever since, I just kind of broke away from my friendship. I guess we've been kind of dancing around the whole idea of you were right. No, you were. I was right. No, you were wrong. It's not real. It's a burden. My wish for her would be that she just sets that down someday and walks away. And I don't want to be identified by the things that, you know, didn't work, or the times when I've felt the most pain I don't want to I don't want that to be my identity I guess we do like just let some things go How do you know you have heard a sincere apology? I don't know if you get apologies so seldom. Because I felt like by the person not saying sorry, they weren't acknowledging my feelings or acknowledging that I still had had worth. Oh yeah, I've run across those types of people. Mistakes I make don't count. I would describe them as narcissistic. How alone it must feel to not be able to notice the others around you when most people don't want to admit weakness the facade of perfection at least it it's a very cavalier attitude about any pain that he might have caused me makes your relationship superficial at worst his intention was to hurt how do you forgive somebody who wants to hurt you i'm still pissed 20 years later we are a society of show-offs and arrogance and pretending that we are more than we are we 
are underwater in our mortgages. <laughs> we lease our cars. Retaining whatever yeah. image they have of themselves. Something's gone wrong. You've reached something of a boundary in your relationship. How do we address this? If we don't say sorry right away, then... Um, Trust could get eroded. I don't know. Uh, you have the chance that something bad could fester, fester and, you know, sour a good relationship. I think the harm is going to be in the relationship. So it doesn't matter if... Um, the person that's important or not, there's still going to be harm in the relationship. And if that harm in the relationship matters or not, that's a different question. But um, um, you know, because if it's somebody you care about and you thought cared about you, their unwillingness to give an apology would say to you, you're not important enough, you know, for them to admit any kind of wrongdoing. You know, like if someone has a mental illness and they cannot possibly see what they did wrong, it's not realistic to expect a, an elegant apology. You know, maybe um, that's the analogy that should be extended to all situations of non-apology. You know, maybe there's this, there's a way that... Uh, People can't see what they did wrong, or if they did, they would give you an apology, you know. So why don't they see what they did wrong? You know, what is it? If you've been hurt and you don't get an apology, um, something has closed. Something has been closed off. So um, you're probably not going to... Um, you know, engage in your relationship in the same way. The relationship from there on is altered and that you don't feel that you can um, attend to it or repair it or that there's any need to anymore. When you grow distant with people, you, you often wonder kind of where it went wrong. Like if they stop returning your calls or aren't as committed a friend as they used to be. And I don't know. Sometimes you wonder if if it was something you did but weren't aware of, that if you could have apologized in the moment, that uh, that it would have led to uh, a friendship that lasted longer than it did. So over time with some of my college teammates, I've not been in communication with them as often, but I don't really want to explain the reason why. So that kind of stops me from apologizing and you know, reconnecting sooner. You know, I stopped trying to fix her and to change her. Surrendering and, and letting her be just who she is, exactly the way she is. And maybe if I had learned that a little sooner, you know, things might have turned out differently. I don't know. How do you feel when somebody does apologize? And you know, to me, there's usually a softening that when somebody apologizes, there's just a softening in the interaction. And if there isn't an apology and something has gone awry, then there's a hardening or a wall, you know? I don't know if it, you want to say it's like a code or... Um, it's a way of keeping people peaceful, really, and um, 
able to live with one another and be in their group. Even animals apologize to each other. I mean, our cats, you know, will when they do something wrong to each other, they'll do something um, to make up for it. <laughs> they'll engage in some kind of behavior that redeems the the relationship. And it seems like, too, that the person who's being apologized to, and I guess in this case it would be me, um, enables the apologizer. It's an openness that an openness that that allows the other person to apologize. You know, the one thing I have tried to break myself of, you know, I have stopped telling them, oh, that's okay, or it's no big deal. I don't do that anymore. Because you know what? It's not okay, and it is a big deal to me. For example, you know, people in the emergency room will call you every name they can think of and insult you, everything you can imagine. And then an hour later, they'll tell you, well, I'm sorry, I acted that way. Well, instead of telling them, oh, that's okay, you know, you're stressed out or, you know, basically comforting them and telling them that their bad behavior is acceptable, I just tell them, thank you for your apology. But I've quit telling people, don't worry about it, it's okay. You know, what they did was wrong and, you know, you did notice, but you're also willing to listen to what they have to say and move forward from it. Looking at them and listening to them, not putting up a barrier. Just, I think you give off cues maybe where, um, subconsciously or not, that you're willing to hear them and ready to hear them, want to hear them. Or some people might put off cues where they're pretending to listen, but they're really sort of thinking, sure, sure, yeah, uh, you know, I, you again. <laughs> mm-hmm. So uh, it's kind of like the fool me once policy. I don't know, you kind of stopped planning around that person. Her apology wasn't sincere. It was a self-preservation technique. A lot of, I want you to stop talking to me about this, so I apologize. Crap, now I've been caught, and I have to try to mitigate whatever damage is going to come from I'm this. I'm sorry if I hurt your feelings. It's not an apology. There isn't an apology that would be unacceptable. There might be one that might be inauthentic, but that's not for me to worry about. The apology is really on them to figure out how to do, how to to come clean on whatever it was that happened. Self-redemption. Maybe they're trying to make up for something. To assuage their guilt. That's the work the apologizer has to do. For them. For themselves. People could definitely be better. Over, over not getting an apology or not accepting an apology as sincere? I'm not going to be happy until you apologize. That is, you are valued enough for the other person to step out and say, I, you know, am sorry. And so, you know, you just have these... Um, Maybe feelings of shame if somebody does something to you where you feel like you deserve an apology. If somebody treated you in a way that disrespected you, um, you might feel shame. Like, how could I be so worthless to you? When a person look you in the eyes, 
say you're sorry and make a person feel better. If you're a real genuine person, it shouldn't be hard to say you're sorry. Cause you know, it should be harder to hold it in, you know what I'm saying? That's just how I am, like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Say like I'm sorry, I said like from the heart, like because anybody can just say I'm sorry about my bad. But you gotta, you know, you gotta mean it. You mean that you really sorry, like you really trying to fix what you messed up. I'm not sure I really want one. Unless somebody feels like they want to give one. But I give one because I think I've been unkind or unfair or haven't been genuine. And so they deserve to know that I wasn't as kind or fair or authentic to them as I should be. Repair any wrongs you've done, repair connections. It's like when something has been severed and you want to reconnect with somebody. Salvage a relationship. Um, That's what you do. To fix what's happened. Um, I don't expect one, though, um, because I tend to assume that most people have good intent. They don't mean to be unkind, and so I don't expect them to be apologizing for some unkindness that they don't know about. Assume good intentions of most people and you'll be okay. You don't need a lot of apology. We love people. We connect with people. Uh, um, and we we want to stay connected to them. It, it's If you don't apologize, it's a way to, to disconnect and remain unconnected, if, especially if somebody holds on to hurt feelings. Who's is it? I think it, it's making amends for for doing something either intentional or unintentional that really hurts someone. How we made people feel or for putting someone in a position they shouldn't have been in. Or disappoints them. Sometimes it's disappointment. And, uh, and um, it's hard to disappoint people sometimes. Um, but there are times I don't apologize for disappointing people. I understand why they're disappointed, but sometimes it's um, something that I can't give. You know? If I choose to be offended, that means that some expectation I had was ruptured. Who was I to have that expectation? What if this is just happening? And I, I, I can expect what's going to happen next, I suppose. But you know what's more fun? Is to let what happens next just happen without expectation. I can't describe how thrilling that is. I plan things ahead, usually as far in advance as possible. And if people don't stick to the plan, it, it's really annoying, anxiety-inducing. It, it's just lots of negative emotions that, that could have been avoided. So I'm only offended if something doesn't match Maybe this I've got this really strong, choreographed thing that occurs in my mind. The car. It says, this is the way this is supposed to occur next. And now it's bent. This is the outcome that's you know, that I'm expecting.
I, I've spent enough time in offense and resentment. You know, I did this, I expect that. I do this, I expect that. And uh, when uh, what, what I expect doesn't occur, uh, I can then tell myself the story, oh, I'm offended or I'm disappointed. And do you see how that's just a circle that I invent? And all that does is make it possible for me to cut myself off from you. Why would I do that? I never want to be cut off from you. For us to l allow anything to get between us seems to be this point in my life. Kind of silly notion. I want to be able to be with my sister. Why would I do that? Why would I do that? Somebody has said something, and I get kind of hurt by it. And I'm like, well, am I going to jeopardize a 20-year relationship over this minor little thing? No, I am not. Uh, somebody runs a red light, and they damage my possession, my car. I've felt offended by something like that happening to me. I get that there's the practical agreements that we have to have about how do we function with one another so that we can make our systems work and that we don't bump into each other. I, th I think that's a distinction, though. And so the question I would pose is, what really got ruptured there? Because I don't spend a whole lot of time with my mind thinking about how offended I am that my attachment to something has been ruptured. Teachers showed up in my life and they, and they sort of held that mirror in front of me and said, really, how's that working for you? <laughs> so I started to consider the uh, possibility that there's another possibility. The story is we were on the way home. My job on the lunar surface was roughly complete since I was responsible for the lunar module itself and for the lunar surface exploration science. Uh, and so I was essentially a systems engineer on a well-functioning spacecraft on the way home. And so I had a little more time to look out the window than the other guys did. <clears throat> and we were in the position uh, on the way home. We were oriented perpendicular to the ecliptic. That's the plane that contains the Earth, the Moon, and the Sun. And we were rotating. So in other words, we were uh, perpendicular to our path of flight and just rotating to keep thermal balance on the spacecraft. And what that allowed to have happen was every two minutes as we rotated, a picture of the Earth, the Moon, the Sun, and a 360-degree panorama of the heavens appeared in the spacecraft window as I looked. And from my training in astronomy at both Harvard and MIT, since I'd taken courses in astronomy there, I realized that matter in our universe was created in star systems. And thus, the molecules in my body and the molecules in the spacecraft and the molecules in my partner's bodies 
were prototyped or manufactured in some ancient generation of stars. And the recognition then, we're all a part of the same stuff. We're all one, as it were. Now, in modern quantum physics, you'd call that uh, uh, interconnectedness. It triggered this uh, experience of saying, wow, those are my stars. My body is connected to those stars. And it was accompanied with a deep, ecstatic experience, which continued uh, every time I looked out the window all the way home. And it, so, so this wasn't uh, an intellectual insight, no, but was, a, no, a full no, body it, experience. It was a whole body experience. And when I got home, I wanted to find out what did this mean. I never had such an experience. So I started digging through the science literature, and I couldn't find anything. And so then I appealed to uh, some uh, anthropologists over at Rice University near the Space Center to please help me try to understand what was going on here. And so they came back to me a short time later and pointed out to me uh, uh, in the Sanskrit what's called samadhi, uh, which is a, an experience of seeing things in their separateness, but you experience them as a unity accompanied by ecstasy. And I said, well, yes, that's exactly the type of experience that I had. And thus I continued my research after that, and I realized, I came to realize, that in virtually every culture of the world, and notably in, our, in the Greek culture, there's some similar type of experience what I call the big picture effect. In other words, you see things in a larger context than you saw them before. And that tends to expand your awareness and you want you try to fill in some of the blanks uh, because you're seeing you're seeing a larger picture than you ever saw before. And I do I do believe if I as I've looked across different cultures <clears throat> that uh, that is the beginning of all religions is when some mystic or some person such as you're describing sometime in the past had such an experience and started trying to uh, make sense of it and put a story around it and to me <clears throat> to me that was the beginning of religion and virtually every culture now it gets it's different in every culture but it starts in my opinion it starts at kind of at the same place uh, seeing things in a larger perspective than you ever saw them before can I read to you, um, Edgar, just a, a very brief um, passage from Marcus Aurelius? All right, go ahead. He wrote, All things are interwoven with one another. A sacred bond unites them. There is scarcely one thing that is isolated from another. Everything is coordinated. Everything works together in giving form to the one universe. Yes, of course, that's, that's it. And from what we know in modern uh, quantum mechanics, that entanglement uh, at, the, at the molecular, the atomic and the molecular level is precisely what is being talked about here, although they didn't have a science to talk about it back in those days. We now have a science, it's called quantum science, and with the properties of non-locality and entanglement, which says that everything is totally entangled in this way. How did this experience change you uh, in the weeks and months and, and years after you came back to Earth? <clears throat> Well, I am, I'll use our word here, I am a, a, a diehard peacenik. I think war and the fact that we kill each other over who's God is the best God and over border disputes uh, is absolutely an abomination and is not civilized behavior at all. It's just 
it is an outgrowth of the old big animals, big animals eat the little, big fish eat the little fish of, of a, a primitive, a primitive existence. And we humans have to grow past that. So have other astronauts um, had uh, comparable experiences? Yeah, well, not necessarily exactly the same, but comparable. That is absolutely right. Uh, a wow, let's say a wow at seeing Earth in a larger scheme of things. And uh, we have talked about it over the years. And there's even been a book in English written called The Overview Effect by uh, Frank White, which essentially describes all of our different experiences and in general it's uh, the, he called it the overview effect i call it the big picture effect it's the fact of seeing earth in a larger perspective i think well we have all said over the years what well, if we would get our political leaders to have a summit meeting in space uh, life and the politics on earth would be markedly different because you can't continue living that way once you have seen that larger picture did astronauts ever look out onto the, the huge expanse of space and feel that actually it's it's a rather um, intimidating, uh, cold and, and and a hostile place? Well, you, in one sense you can say that, but as I said, the author Frank White interviewed all of us and he said they've all had some sort of experience. I'm calling it the overview effect. Mm. and. Uh, we all had some experience of profundity and looking at the bigger picture of uh, Earth in the context of the heavens. Do you think that um, cosmology and uh, astronomy uh, can help make uh, a person a bit more uh, detached and, and relaxed about their own um, individual problems? Just, do, you, do you think that getting that uh, bigger picture can, can make one more detached? Well, I think it always has. Uh, the more we know, the more we and the more we understand the context of Earth and the, the heavens and uh, our whole situation of reality. Uh, I think the more comfortable we can come with it. Mm. That's just a, that's a knowledge. Knowledge has always done that, in my opinion. That knowledge knowledge frees us up. But could it be that the universe is so enormous? The Earth is so tiny that, and our lives are so tiny in comparison that really one could feel that they were just uh, absurd. I mean, it, it, it could have a kind of, you know. Uh, well, you can, but I don't think people have had that. What they see is an amazement of uh, they, you're seeing yourself as very tiny in the larger picture, but there's a certain amazement that goes with grasping that larger picture. And I know that all of the all of the men that have gone into space, one thing they agree on is that we have, we would like to have our politicians and our leadership out there having that look because it does change your perspective of things. It pulls you together. And I suppose we might see um, within not too many years um, the, the ability for ordinary people to to, to be taken into space. Uh, do you think that will have an impact on on on, on how humans think? Well, I think so. It always has. And that's what I, I say, this big picture effect, the, the amazement of seeing things in a larger context always seems to, to do something really profound to the way we observe and interpret life. Edgar Mitchell, 
who had been on the moon. He was coming back to Earth. He had all, the, all his mission responsibilities were over. He was just looking out the window at the Earth slowly rotating as he was approaching it. And he had kind of a samadhi experience just spontaneously, um, feeling connected with, with um, the Earth and everything and having this kind of peace and joy and um, all the stuff that goes with that. And you think, what is this? So um, he started studying it. A couple years later, he established the Institute of Noetic Sciences, and they look at this stuff, among other things. We are co-creating the universe right here and right now. Are you working up to your potential? Are you doing your very best? We are able to imagine anything. We are currently imagining this. One of the stories in my head is that all of this, what's going on around us right now in terms of this, uh, society and economics is pretty much being manipulated by some very powerful folks. And uh, I, I don't know. I think there's a good argument to say things have kind of gotten out of control. What would happen if 7 billion people started doing something entirely differently with their life energy? I don't know. More and more people say, well, I will after my shift is over. And I, I don't know. That makes my heart hurt. What are people doing with their lives that they're waiting for something? It's a story we've all been told. We have to go earn a living. If we just stopped collectively and started making a living being real and doing work that we love, I think we might be able to create a really interesting world. <laughs> and people are trying. People are trying. I was just at a, um, a uh, protest in Indiana uh, over the extraction of fossil fuels. So we marched on the uh, British Petroleum plant in Whiting, Indiana, and 30 people um, dared risk of arrest by putting their bodies in a position where they were unwelcome. And they were dutifully, I guess, uh, arrested. I'm not sure that that's the path to changing uh, at the pace that's required. If you look at the science, the pace at which we need to stop extracting fossil fuels is enormous. It's much more rapid than that. So there's this little choreographed dance that the police did, that the protesters did. So if you want, it, you want a question about a fence, what, we've, what we are doing to Mother Earth may be the most grievous offense imaginable, and all that's going to happen is she'll shake the fleas off. The only thing that hurts my heart about that is there are probably seven or ten or dozens of generations that could come and experience what we are all experiencing that will not because we're going to burn this place up this place is going to go away 
this does not last. Uh, there will be a day when the sun's corona occupies this space where you and I are sitting. I get that. But why are we hastening the demise of this most beautiful planet, third rock from the sun? This is too spectacular. Too spectacular to not let as many inhabitants as possible have this experience. But we're putting a limit on that. That seems sort of offensive to me. Each person needs to kind of have an experience where they can let it go in order to recognize when they need to do that in the future. In high school, my best friend throughout ninth grade ended up kind of bullying me in 10th grade. Basically alienated me from my friend group that we were a part of. I saw her probably two years after graduating and at that time realized, you know, she was kind of going through a hard time. I still don't think that justified her uh, kind of lashing out at me, but it kind of put it into context, which is why I thought, you know, I it's really doing me no good to carry this, so let's just put it behind us and move on. Well, most of the time I don't think about it. You know, every once in a while I do, and when I do, I'm angry still. <laughs> Uh, and he's moved away. He lives in the East Coast at this point, you know. So it's not like a person that I see every week when I go to church or something like that, you know. There's this sort of negative energy there, you know. Uh, I don't know what to do about it. I mean, my my temperament is to, to blame very few people, to make enemies with very few people. But the ones I have, I seem to hold on to with a great deal of stubbornness. And does it cost me? Yeah, it costs me. Just being angry, you know, it's it's a tiring emotion. You know, if you're really, really pissed, then it starts to modify your own focus about what you want to do with your life and what your assumptions about the goodness of life itself, you know. Um, you definitely don't want one hurtful incident to, to warp your life view forever. You know, isolate it, somehow put a fence around it, you know, don't let it control everything else in your life. So I'm describing the same event. You know, the death of a spouse, a spouse by suicide. And I'm describing a doctor who could have saved her life and and didn't because of a misjudgment. Okay, I'm describing uh, a sort of elder in the church sort of prohibiting a memorial service after the death. Did not contribute to her death directly at all. I forgave the doctor. I did not forgive the, uh, the church elder. I was told at our Quaker meeting that... Uh, that um, memorials did not happen right away, that they often were a year later. And the person who told me that really either did not know uh, what was what was the actual procedure in, in Quaker meetings, and I was pretty new to Quakers at that point, and kind of, you know, expecting him to be my mentor in, in dealing with this sort of difficult situation. Um, I never got an apology for that. And, you know, like I have held on to that for 20 years now. You know, for 20 years I have been angry with this guy 
for telling me something that number one was not true, number two was terribly painful at the time, and still, still to some extent, is because I have never received an apology. On the opposite side of that, you know, I had taken her in to see her psychiatrist the day before she committed suicide, and he didn't see it as a sufficiently um, alarming situation to recommit her. She was on a provisional release of commitment from Anoka. Uh, Anoka Regional Treatment Facility at that point. And with just his say-so, she could have gone back like immediately, and perhaps that would have been a better thing, and perhaps she would have survived at least that mechanism. He did what he could do. He did what he thought was best, and it wasn't enough. I knew, and he knew immediately that he had made a misjudgment, and that his judgment, you know, had been part of what cost her her life. But I also knew he was sorry, you know, that he was um, I knew he was sorry. I knew. I knew that he felt that, and I knew that he was, you know, sincerely sorry for that. And it ma made all the difference. Because he had apologized, it made all the difference in the world. Own, take responsibility. I'm the one that apologizes. She never will. She never will. When I worked with kids, uh, teenagers in a inpatient psych setting and, and some of them, a good significant percentage of that population were also from juvenile hall. But one of the things that I discovered quickly on was is that if you make a mistake with these kids but you own it immediately, uh, it can be actually a very powerful trust building thing in that sense because uh, suddenly somebody is actually saying, hey wait a minute, I screwed up and they're taking some sort of responsibility for it and they're not uh, leaving you holding the bag, as it were. And it could be a very quick accelerant with kids who had struggled with trust issues because suddenly there was somebody giving them that. Uh, and maybe they hadn't experienced that before or that it was so rare that it was like, wow. My life has gotten small and manageable. And um, I can spend most of my time not thinking about how am I going to get the next thing I need or who, who's expecting something from me. And instead, what I can do is actually show up in, in absolute service to the people I know and love. It's hard to try to generalize with this, but this seems to be the, the overall feel of things now. We seem to be in a period of time that thwarts or punishes things like empathy. Uh, it, it just seems that it's a value that gets, I'll put it this way, that gets crowded out of the marketplace. Where's the common strand of, of our humanity together? Uh, you're just an adversary. Uh, so I think that's the, the conditions that we live in now, our uh, a sociopathic marketplace. What have you done for me lately? Your function is only important in terms of how it affects what I need or want, and otherwise it's irrelevant to me kind of thing. Greed is good. Uh, swift retribution, violent reaction. What do I want to say? A short circuit to a violent response rather than anything else. How to put this? You, well, you've, you've, got to, you've got to fit the mold of this competitive world, or what good are you? It increases our sense of alienation from each other and ourselves, even. So let's talk about the word servant. Committed. We are in.
Like grandma's house in South Dakota. There's Pat and Tracy hugging each other, saying hello. Super blue sky. A little bit windy. Looks like a guest ranch. I haven't been in here, so I'll have to check it out. Dedication and loyalty to a cause. Adventurous. Adventurous. Willing to take risks. It's a crocheted throw. And the color is... The name of the color was a play on turquoise. So it's a turquoise color. I made it for mom's 80th birthday. So I spent... I don't know, I started it like in... Straightforward, which is honest and frank. We all get that from you. Happy birthday, Mom. One of the things I'd like to thank you for is... Chatting with me every morning Strong via and tough. text. Actually, it's usually every Recovers morning. from things in difficult conditions. Something about the weather, or what I'm going to do that day, or what I have planned tomorrow. Just kind of chit-chat that you would have if you were in a room. Perseveres, we all get that from you too. You know how to stick with it and hang in there and get done what needs to get done. I really appreciate that just because it makes me feel closer to you. I know that you and dad are okay. You always kind of tell me what's going on, or you might tell me something family news. Sometimes we chat about politics, which can be interesting. Sometimes we chat about uh, just silly things like how uh, handsome uh, Jamie is on Outlander. So um, I just appreciate those messages, and you know, I. I never delete them. I don't know if it's possible for me to keep them forever, but um, I just like saying hello every morning. And one other thing um, that I'd like to thank you for is the times that you came and watched. You took care of Lucy. Lucy for us. I appreciate that a lot. I still have the whale that you gave Dale. It's got to be 25 years ago. You know, it's just one of those funny things that you bought him a whale, a, a dish sponge whale. But I know the reason behind it was is because I would call him Dale the whale, which is, is in jest, obviously, because he's a skinny mini. And there's, it, but it was always a, a fun nickname that I always called him. But anyways, I always appreciated your fun gifts. You know, I could tell that you had uh, given some thought to it and was special. Devoted, helpful, follower, or supporter. True leadership is servanthood. Mom, thank you for your wisdom. I think Mom's one of the wisest people I know. And in the midst of uh, what I would consider a crisis or a disaster, she always finds a, a better spin or a, a good spin to it. I'm very thankful for that. It's a way of ministry and one who is obedient or faithful to God or Christ. I feel like I have a lot of of personality traits from Grandma. I she had such a, a huge a huge role in 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 who I am. You're all of those things. I had hands down the, one of the best childhoods ever. Raising Gathlane. I mean, I couldn't have done it without you guys. I've always appreciated that. I always loved coming back and spending summers after my mom and I moved to Boise. Mom is one of the least judgmental people that I know. She's just very welcoming. I mean, welcoming of people, circumstances. I admire that about her. 
I like her sense of humor. She's got a spunky sense of humor. Um, she's a little racy. I don't think she wants people to know that, but she's got a little wild side to her. <laughs> and I'm thankful for that. <laughs> I do remember this one shirt she bought that said, no shirt, no shoes, no tan lines. And my mom was not impressed with the shirt at all. She was actually pretty, pretty upset about it. I don't think I was allowed to wear it to school, but I got to wear the shirt because Grandma fought for my no shirt, no shoes, no tan line shirt when I was like 14. You went to Sarah's house when she was having a baby. Thank you, Grandma, for everything you've done for me in the last 38 years. You know, being the person that I could always walk up the hill and run away from home and come live with you for a week and you didn't care. The best memory I have is when I was pregnant with Noah. She took care of me and she fed me and she made sure I slept. I don't know a lot of kids that can say that their great-grandma was the first one that held them. You guys are always there in service to other members of the family and we love you for it and we can all learn something from you. Happy birthday. was there for me like she had always been my entire life, but then she was there for my kids too. The reason I picked the word servant is because I think about how you and dad went and got Uncle Rudy and brought him home to your house. You took care of your sisters. You went out to Aunt Virginia. You spent three months with Aunt Goldie recently. You were at Amy's house when she had surgery. My surgery, you guys took care of me, you cooked for me, you made sure I had my meds, we went for walks. I mean, I think that was one of the nicest times of my life. You know, it was like a, like a focused group. I remember you, you said to me, your world gets very small at that point, you know, and I've always appreciated that. <laughs> you helped Joseph when he thought he had his car stolen. Every time I think about being a kid, it's always growing up with my grandparents up the road. Yeah, it's home. No, she's the best. Hands down the best. Love you, Mom. Glad we could all get together for your 80th birthday. But you know, sometime back we had a conversation when you said, I wonder what people are going to say about me. What you said is, I can't imagine what they would say about me. I said, Mom, I know what I would say about you. She taught me patience. She taught me forgiveness. Um, oddly, she taught me love. How to truly love another human being. and make it look little pretty and stick me in it. Your mom wants a regular burial. I think we'll probably uh, should be buried in the uh, Black Hill Cemetery, the National Cemetery. She could be buried in the National Cemetery because of me. So 
I think they they just put us up there. They can you can be cremated. One of them can be cremated. One of them can have a regular burial and be in the same grave. And they just put a little marker there, a military marker. But uh, I don't even you know this sounds kind of gory to be talking about. But I don't even want to be uh, embalmed. Like Rosemary, when she died, she was just buried, and she had to be buried within 24 hours. So she died uh, one day. And the next day she was buried, and like uh, cause I remember, because it was later in the afternoon before they, we could get it done, and we had to pay the the grave diggers overtime because they had to cover the grave. But no, Rosemary wasn't involved. Arden, my brother, he wasn't involved. When he got that fast moving cancer, he had to make some plans, so he went down to Jefferson Barracks, which is a national cemetery down by St. Louis, and. Uh, that's where he was going to be buried because he's retired military. He went down there and he walked out in the cemetery and they had dug a couple of graves, getting ready for some people. And he looked down there and they were half full of water because the water table was right up next to the ground. He said, there ain't no way in hell they put me in there. So he got buried out in the Pacific. I said, you know, if I died tomorrow, you know what I would really want to cremate me. And, and then when she died, they'd have a, any service together, but I don't even want a service. I, I, I see. I think if I die tomorrow, why would everybody want to run home? Say, so, yeah, there he is. I don't know. It just seems like we've been married all these years. Why not have a ceremony for, not a ceremony, but a, a service for both of us at the same time when we're both together, you know, in a box, keep saying, uh, saying the funerals for the living. I don't know if I believe it or not. It seems like. Well, that's like when Virginia died. We had that uh, Buick, and we drove from South Dakota here. So I mean, we drove, I drove all day and all half a night. We got to Wisconsin. We couldn't find a place to stay. It was like 1 o'clock or 2 o'clock in the morning before we ever found a motel. And it was, uh, kids were tired. and uh, We go to the service where Virginia was not even here. And it lasted. 15 minutes, and we drove all the way back home. I'm not putting that down. I'm not saying I, did, I wouldn't do it again, but it just seemed like, uh, I guess it didn't make a lot of sense to me. I think we lose, we lose touch with our connection to one another. In the 40s. And to early 40s. Creation. I felt I was sleepwalking through life. I When we're little. It seems. You know, you know, when you get older, years kind of like go on and go by. And it's like, okay, what am I doing with myself? And not really being present. Um, but yeah, I just felt I was kind of not here. Um, in a way. And... So I felt meditation practice was something I should be doing for various other reasons as well. Um, and so I was looking around and I was talking to a Zen teacher at the Zen Center. And I thought, okay, I'll describe to him what that, like that weird experience. What is that? One at Red Owl? Yes. And I've had since. like waking up and all of a sudden it was like bing 
I'm awake. What am I doing here? And it's almost like, what am I doing here and what am I in? I can have hands and I can move and... It felt scary but not scary. Um, I was just totally kind of in the moment and seeing everything new. I described it to him, he said, that's beginner's mind. And that's what they, that's one that you get when you, when you meditate. But the fact is he understood and knew what this phenomenon was, was kind of important to me. It's like, okay, this is being acknowledged as a thing. So, okay, I'm going to settle with these people. So that's kind of how I became involved with the Zen Center. It's, it's like a fearless state, because it's like, no matter what happens to my body or me or whatever, I'm okay. I'm okay. to quote it the question of the day podcast i am rebecca smith if you would like to find out more you can sign up for the newsletter at questionpodcast.com thank you to everyone who contributed to this episode links will be up on the website again that's questionpodcast.com thanks for listening until next time take care